Amen. Well, good morning. Glad you guys are with us. My name is Derek Carpenter. I'm one of the pastors here. You know, as I was sitting here, I was just kind of thinking, sometimes people think they need to get their act together before they come to church, or they need to get right with God before they come to church, and that's that's not right. <laughs> this is a place where we get to meet with God. If you're visiting or you're new, just so you know, our main goal when we get together right now is to meet with God, is to let him speak into our lives, to praise him and worship. Our goal isn't to get something from you or, or anything like that or, or promote ourselves. Our goal is to meet with God. And so we, it's a privilege for us that you're here, that we get to hopefully serve you in the way of, of helping you meet with God this morning. Um, but think about your friends and family that, that maybe they feel like, I can't go to church because I'm messy. Well, guess what? We're all messy. Some of us hide it more than others. But this is a place we want to be safe, where we can come in just as we are. But luckily, God doesn't leave us where we are. We can meet with God and let him uh, touch our lives uh, and grow us. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that uh, we are free. Free forever. Amen. We're free uh, from the penalty of sin that is eternal death and hell. We're free from that. We, we're free from enslavement to sin. We don't have to go that way anymore. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross. Uh, thank you for this room that we can get together. Thank you for the leaders in the room next door that are serving those kids. I pray that those kids would open themselves up to what you would do in their lives. Protect them from the enemy. Protect them from this world. Uh, and God, I pray that, that those kids over there, that you would raise them up to be Young adults and then adults who love you, adore you, and go on mission for you, making an impact in this world, changing lives for the better. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be in Colossians, so you can turn there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, grab one from the seat in front of you, and uh, it's going to be page 1088. 1088 is where we're going to be. Um, you are catching us on the last week of this series. People don't change, do they? Our last week, and if you miss the other ones, no big deal. You can listen to them on the podcast or we'll sum it up. But the idea is as we've started this new year, we've wanted to take a look at, you know, we, we do resolutions the beginning of the year, and, and by now they've all gone by the wayside. We've fallen away from them. And we get, we get to a point where we think, man, we can't really change, can we? Or, or I am this way, I'm an angry person, or, or whatever it is. And we get stuck in a rut. When really, in Christ, we're free and life change can happen. And so that's what we want to help you with. That's why we're doing a series of life change. I uh, read an article this last week by the Huffington Post, uh, which is a, a fairly liberal newspaper. And they had an article that said, The Habits of Supremely Happy People. And I thought it was interesting. I read it. Uh, there were 20 or so habits, and at least half of them were relational. And I found that interesting as I read through the list of habits of supremely happy people, all of them, or, or half of them, were relational. Things like, like they surround themselves with other happy people. Uh, they're mindful of the good. They give of time and money to others. They enjoy deeper conversations. They listen well, uphold interperson connections, uh, and children who experience spiritual, spirituality are much happier than other children. I, I found that interesting because that's kind of what we're talking about in this series. We're talking about, we started with going, who do you want to be? You know, are you content in life? And if not, why not? And we want to get over those things. And the goal isn't happiness, but that's not a bad goal, is it? Uh, the goal is not happiness by worldly standards. So it, it sounds at first we're talking, well, this is kind of selfish. But I wanted to read to you what Jesus said. Jesus said in the, in the Gospel of John, he said, I came 
that you may have life and have it abundantly. That was said by Jesus, the Son of God, the Creator, Sustainer of all, the Redeemer. So what he says matters. He came that, that we may have life and have it abundantly. That word life in the Greek is not bios, where we get biology. It's zoe, meaning life, like full life. You ever have one of those days where you're on the back porch and, and you have an iced tea or whatever it is and it's warm and the kids are playing? You're like, this is the life. Kind of that, ah, this is the life. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what that word life means. He wants that for us. This isn't the health and wealth gospel. This, this isn't you come to God and, and uh, you, know, you get a new job and you get all this money and your health is great. That's not the gospel. Rather, we come to Jesus and he changes some of what we want and then he gives us what we want. We can be content and joyful despite circumstances. And that's what we're looking at. And the Bible actually agrees with this Huffington Post article that one of the ways that we can experience life that God has for us, one of the main ways is in community, in relationships with one another. Uh, good news, if you have not done relationships well in the past, tomorrow's a new day. God can change those things. Some of us have made big mistakes in the past, relationally. We can work on that. And that's what we're going to look at. Paul gets very practical with us today with how we can change, how we can do relationships well. Uh, last week, we talked about natural athletes. You know, those people that just, they just have it. They're just good at sports. They can run, they can jump, that stuff. But to really excel, they still need to practice. For us, it's similar in the Christian walk. We have everything we need to thrive in Jesus Christ. Everything we need. But we have a tendency in church, because that's true, to go, we sit back and go, okay, then God just do that in me. Rather, we're kind of like that natural athlete. We now have everything we need, but now there's some things we need to do to partner with God to experience the life he has for us. And we encounter a change. That's what we've been talking about. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the things that won't fulfill. Uh, we talked about a new playbook. So as a Christian, first thing is, I mean, for this new life, you have to be converted. You have to turn your life over to Jesus. And then you get a new playbook. We talked about uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, who went from the Patriots to the 49ers. And he doesn't use the Patriots playbook anymore. He now uses the 49ers playbook. It's different. Same with us. Now we have a new playbook, a new way to live. And so, because that's true, Paul has said, stop doing certain things. Last week, he said, kill whatever's left of the flesh in you. Basically, any sin that's remaining in you, kill it. We had a machete, if you missed it. We had a machete, and, and cauliflower was the sin, and we chopped it up. But he, that's what Paul was saying. Be aggressive with the sin in your life. Kill it. And then he says, take off other aspects of sin. You kill Two categories, sexual sin and relational sin. And today, we're going to look at what to put on. And so here's, here's kind of the concept as I was reading it. It's kind of like, I mean, a change, but a change of climate. Earlier in, in Colossians, we saw that we have been rescued from the domain of darkness. That is the worldly way of living dominated by Satan. We've been rescued from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. So we're saved transferred, and it's kind of like we moved from Hawaii to Alaska. You live differently. There's something different. So we, we take off our old way of living. Don't worry, I'm just taking off this one. <laughs> but, but it's a Hawaiian shirt. So you move to Alaska or, or, or Tahoe in February, you're not going to be wearing a shirt like this. So he says, take it off. 
We can, as Christians, we can still walk the way we used to, but life isn't there, so why would you? So take some of those things off, and now we look at some of the things that we're supposed to put on. The abundant life is one where God's people relate to one another in a healthy way. Let me read Colossians 3, 12 to 17. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put these on, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. How do we live this different life? It begins, it always begins, and he yet again begins with your identity. What does he say in verse 12? He says, put on then, but before he tells us what to put on, he says, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. This is what he calls them. These are Christians that are meeting in a house church in, in Colossae, and he calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. If you read the New Testament, you'll find often, 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 always, who you are comes before what you do. So one of the things we said will not change your life, will not lead to flourishing, is religion. Religion, it, it gives you a list of rules and things to do. It means get, you know, clean up your act, do these things to be right with God. Rather, following Jesus isn't about religion. It's not about doing certain things, but it's about coming to him and, and receiving what he's done, and he changes you. First thing it says here is that you are chosen. You are chosen. Have you thought about that? The Bible is very clear, and this, this is, can be you know, debated in the church of what that means. But the idea is very clear in scripture. You have been chosen by God. Chosen. It doesn't mean you don't have to choose him also, but you have been chosen. He looked at you and said, I want that one. Not because of anything you've done, not because you're better than anybody else, but because he loved you. He chose you, chose you to be saved eternally and adopted. The picture that I had was, was a scruffy little dirty kid. Uh, orphan kid, you know, back when there were kings and stuff. And so he's, he's in the village and running around and just, just a bad kid. You ever meet just a bad kid? Um, there's none here. We don't know any here. But, but just, a, just a rotten kid, you know. He's, he's stealing food. He's tripping people. In the, just a bad kid. The king goes for a walk through the village, through the, the city, and he sees this kid, and he goes, that one. I want that one. Not because there was anything good about the kid. I want that one. So his servants go. They take the kid. They put him in the carriage. They take him to the castle. They get him all bathed and clean. They cut his hair. They give him new clothes, and then they take him to a feast and sit him next to the king. The king says, you can live here now, and I'm going to adopt you and give you my name. That's chosen. That kid didn't earn it. That kid doesn't deserve it. And he's now adopted, given a new name, and made royalty. That's what the Bible teaches about believers. Not better than other people. Chosen by God. Chosen, and then what else does he say? As God chosen one, holy, holy. We are called holy. 
Do you know what that means? It means set apart for a purpose. Back in the Old Testament, they, they had the temple where they did religious things. And they were told to make things holy or sanctify them. So they would take a plate and they had to wash it in a certain way to make it holy. Then they could use it for God's service. You and I are holy, not perfect, but holy, accepted by God and set apart for a purpose. We are holy because of Jesus. So don't, don't have any of this. Now we need to be self-righteous people. It's, it's about what Jesus did for you. It's his righteousness laid on to you. You know, we, we did this a couple weeks ago where we said, put up your finger, that's you and all your sin. But we are, our life is hidden in Christ. So Christ wraps us in himself, in his holiness. So then when God looks at us, he sees us holy. And then he sets us apart for a purpose. And that's huge. That's a very important thing that we need to understand that we have been set apart for a purpose, because of what Jesus did. Uh, flip back to Colossians 1, verse 19 to 21, describes this very well. It says, For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, meaning Jesus is fully divine, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil things, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's who you are. So tomorrow when you wake up or later this week when you're struggling, you can look in the mirror and go, I'm accepted and I'm holy. That's who you are, holy. So, it, it leads to then live like it. But here's the other thing. Holy, chosen, holy, and what's the next one? Beloved. Beloved. You are loved by God. That's a big deal. God is not this angry God that wants us to obey all these rules. You know, you've heard that like a kid with a magnifying glass on ants. That's not our God. He loves you. And he likes you. He likes you. Just the way you are, he likes you. Now, he doesn't want to leave you in your sin. He wants you to have this full life that Jesus said, I came that they may have life abundantly. He wants you to have that, and so it may take some, some work to get you there, but he loves you. You are loved, and listen, not based on your performance. Not based on your performance. And if you had a parent who, who loved you, it seemed like based on your performance, maybe you struggle with this. You struggle with needing to perform to be good, and you feel like God loves you more. And when you're not doing so good, you think God loves you less. He's not as fickle as we are. We are loved. Are you humbled by that? That he chose you, he made you holy, and he loves you? I'm humbled by that because I know I don't deserve it. Now that's who we are. Now we can go to how can we experience the life he has for us? Now that's who we are. How do we behave? What we do flows out of who we are. Being and doing cannot be separated. You got that? Being and doing cannot be separated. We're right with God, and now we live differently as we walk in the Spirit, as we abide, as we hold closely to Him. Now we have to intentionally live differently. So he says this, put on, verse 12, put on then as God chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts. Compassion is pity that leads to action. Just pity is not compassion. You know, you, you may look at somebody and feel sorry for them. That's pity. 
Compassion means you feel sorry for somebody and then you do something about it. You enter in. We as Christians are to put on compassionate hearts. Put on, meaning make the choice to do it. It might not come naturally. Last week we had a football up here and I played catch with Andrew in the back. And it's kind of like throwing left-handed. It takes some practice. So we have to intentionally put on compassion, pity that leads to action. The other one is kindness. Tender goodness for the well-being of another. Kindness. Both of these are a heart of care. And we know what kindness is. James, the half-brother of Jesus, describes it well in James 2, 15 to 16. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you don't give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Christians are compassionate and kind. We, uh, a few months ago, I think it was, we, we looked at Acts to see how does God do a movement among his people? What does a movement look like? And one of the things, as we see in the book of Acts, is when the church was forming, thousands were being saved right away. There was nobody in the, in the church that was in need. They took care of one another. It's a different way of living. So we have to be intentional. We have to put this on. Uh, I experienced this, oddly, just this week. A couple days ago, I was in a restaurant and this guy sat next to me and he wouldn't shut up. And he just kept talking. And if you're like me, sometimes you, your, your brain is going this way and he's just talking. And so I had to stop and go and put on compassion and, and put on kindness and listen and talk because he wanted to talk. Well, eventually I got to share the gospel with him because I decided, but I had to choose. It wasn't coming naturally. That's my point. It doesn't come naturally to me in those situations. But then we got to talk and, and, and we we're talking and, and he said, you know, I've realized that, that uh, you know, one, one religion can't claim to have all the truth. I said, really? You don't think so? I said, but what if two completely disagree? Either one is right and the other's wrong or they're both wrong, right? He's like, well, I guess so. And he was raised Mormon. And so we got to talk all about that. I said, either there is one God in three persons, and this is his, the world he created, he loves us, or there's a lot of gods that have their own planets. Either they're both wrong or one is wrong, right? He's like, yeah, I guess so. So it, it was a good conversation. But I had to put that on. Some of you are probably better at that than I am of just doing those things, but put it on. So here's, here's the example. So we, we moved from Hawaii to Alaska. Now we have to intentionally put some things on. We have to dress differently. You know, it's cold. Flannel, good choice. Hey, that's from Costco. I have one of those. <laughs> Five, other people. Five other people. Yeah. So we intentionally dress for the elements. If we're going to live in Tahoe, you're not going to go wait at the bus stop in T-shirts. You, you probably have seen that in the mornings when you drive by these kids because it's cool. They'll be out there freezing 20 degrees only in a T-shirt. No, we need to put on, <laughs> we need to put on the clothing that befits a Christian. And that leads to a fullness of life as well. So we put it on. What's the next thing that we see? Oh, humility. Humility. Humility is not... Self-depreciation. Humility is a, an honest assessment of your strengths and weaknesses and being open with that. Humility, we think of humility as this thinking lowly of self, but it's not exactly that. It, it's, it's placing yourself under others. I think C.S. Lewis explains this very well. Uh, I think it's from Mere Christianity. He said this, Do not imagine 
that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap. C.S. Lewis is British. Intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I think that's really helpful. The humble person isn't trying to be humble. They're not thinking about themselves. That fits perfectly. To live the life that God wants for you, to live a life of flourishing, guess what? It's not about you. That's the new playbook. The, the world's playbook is it's about you. Go do what makes you happy. You've probably heard that. Whatever makes you happy, do that. In relationships, money, car, whatever, do what makes you happy. But that doesn't lead to flourishing. Rather, rather, we put on Jesus Christ and we live his way. And so we put Jesus first. That was the, the first week. Seek, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. We seek him first. We thank him first. And here's the other thing. Then we love others. What was the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Christian life is relational, God and others. And my job is to be under you. My job is to serve you. That's humility. Not putting yourself ahead, not trying to be above others. That's humility. And we have to put that on. That doesn't always come natural. Maybe some of us struggle with pride. But we put on humility. What's the next one? Gentleness. We put on gentleness. Gentleness or translated meekness. It's not weakness. Gentleness is strength under control. That's gentleness. Picture a, a giant of a man holding a little baby gently. That's gentleness. It's, it's the person that can be wronged and not retaliate. That can hold their strength. I think a great picture of this is a, a horse. A horse has great strength, but when it's broken, then a little girl can get on it and guide it wherever. Can be in, it's, it's meek. Strength under control. This isn't self-control as much as it's God control. The strong person letting God be in control, that's meekness or gentleness. That's what a Christian is supposed to be. That's the person that is wronged without having to demand their rights. And we've experienced that. We're Americans. We demand our rights. I deserve this. The meek person doesn't. The meek person is able to take it, put themselves, and just take it. And not wallow in their self-pity, but, but take it joyfully, oddly enough. That's the Christian life. So we put on these things. We put on kindness and gentleness. By the way, a mean Christian is kind of like a cat that barks. It doesn't make sense. So we, we put these on. Now we live in a different climate. We have to put on the things to live in the new climate. Is it warm in here? What's the next thing we put on? Patience. Patience means long suffering. Waiting a sufficient time before expressing anger. You wait a long time before you get angry. Patience. The Christian is a patient person. I think what's neat is Paul assumes we're going to wrong each other. Paul assumes we're going to mess up. And you can assume I'm going to mess up. And I can assume you're going to mess up. So we have to be patient with each other. 
It doesn't mean you don't deal with things. If somebody wrongs you, it doesn't mean there's an appropriate time to go talk to them and bring it and let's work this out. But it means you don't get angry. Last week, that was one of those things we were supposed to take off. Anger. We don't get angry. We wait a sufficient time before expressing anger. Then verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against you, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We bear with one another and we forgive one another. Again, same concept. We talked last week about the dance of the porcupine. That it gets cold and the porcupine gets, you know, two porcupines in there and they're cold, so they huddle together to get warm. But because they got quills, they're going to poke each other. If you've been married, you understand this. You love them, but every now and then, you know, you rub the wrong way. Everybody gets this. That's, that's the Christian life. The Christian life is lived in community, and we're going to mess up. That's what he's saying. So endure it. Bear with one another. Forgive each other quickly. You know how many churches have been torn apart because they didn't do this? I remember a story of a, a guy who went somewhere in the south. He went to a church, and there was another church across the street and down with almost the same name. He said, what's up with this? He said, well, 50 years ago, there were two ladies that didn't really get along in the church, and they had this potluck, and they both made fried chicken. And the pastor ate this one's, not that one. And she took her dish and a bunch of people, and they went and started another church. True story. But that's an extreme version of what can happen. That's why we, we put these things on. Have you been wronged before? Endure it. Be patient with it. That's where life comes. The example that came in my mind, you know, is how much pain is caused by unforgiveness? How much pain is caused by relational strain? Probably the greatest pain there is. But forgiveness, it's like releasing this weight. When I was a kid, I played roller hockey, and we played at the church, and uh, I was playing against Derek, who was talking a lot, who's the pastor's son, and finally I got sick of it, and so I checked him and tackled him, and you know we didn't wear gloves, but it was kind of like the throw the gloves off thing. Took him to the ground, put him in a headlock, and then said, when you calm down, I'm going to let you up. Didn't make any sense, and they made fun of me that for years. But we had this little fight, you know, and then I storm out, and he storms out, and a few minutes later, he comes out, and he's like, I'm sorry, and I'm like, I'm sorry. I mean, it, it just it was like this cancer, this relational thing. It was a friend. We had a battle, and then we quickly forgave. And, and that's easier for guys, you know, in that situation. You get heated, whatever, but that's, that's kind of the picture. We need to be quick to forgive. And he gives us some more good examples here. It, verse well, we have to notice in verse 13, who's our standard of forgiveness? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our standard of forgiveness. He forgave you. He chose you, loved you when you didn't deserve it. So an unforgiving Christian, again, is like a cat that barks. If we're not willing to forgive, are we not accepting the forgiveness God has given us? So we are forgiving. Now, verse 14, there's a common thread that over all these, uh, and above all, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on love. What is the greatest commandment? You know, if we're going to go up to the mountains and go skiing, we've got to put it all on. We've got to be ready. And love is the one that circles, you know, you can go skiing and you can have all this, but without the jacket, you're going to get cold up there, right, Lydia? You need the jacket. So you get ready. You put on love, which you know, brings it all together. As long as you've got love, you don't even need gloves. You can put your hands in your pockets. Love is what covers it all. Love should be the, the, the lens through which we do everything. If I'm going to confront you, love better be the lens. If I'm going to forgive you, love definitely is going to be the lens. Without love, we're going to demand what we want. It's going to be about us. 
the main thread, as I see in this passage, is it's not about me. It's not about me. And this joy-filled life that Jesus wants is a life that's not about me. So it doesn't make sense. A new playbook. The world says to be full, do these things. Get money, keep your health, you know, do whatever makes you happy. Do all these things. God's way, totally opposite, says it's actually not about you. And once you realize that, then you can thrive. Then you can thrive. I'm going to take this off. You get the picture. We wouldn't be in Alaska. We wouldn't be in Tahoe in January, maybe this Tahoe, or this January we would, in a, in a flowered shirt, in a T-shirt. We dress for the elements. As Christians, we put on these things intentionally, ready to enter into relationships with others. In verse 15, oh, this is in your notes, I believe, but, you know, love this is not my definition. I stole it from somebody else. I don't remember who, but I think it's the best definition. Love is a choice to do what is best for the other person when they least deserve it at great personal cost. That's love. That's what covers the rest, doing what's best for some, someone else when they least deserve it. Not when they, des- when they least deserve it, and it will cost you. That's love. That's the love we're called to. Verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The peace of Christ, let it rule. That word rule is very literally umpire. Umpire. They didn't have baseball back then, but that's, that's maybe they did. Umpire. The one that calls the balls and the strikes. That's the idea. Let the peace of Christ in you call the balls and strikes. When, you, when somebody wrongs you and you naturally want to respond this way, let the peace of Christ be umpire and go, that's a ball. Don't swing. (laughs) Don't take it. Let the peace of Christ rule. Based on your identity, that's our motivation. Going back to who we are in Jesus, I'm accepted, I'm loved. Then guess what? When people wrong me, whatever. (laughs) I'm accepted, I'm loved. The peace of Christ is more important. Paul writes elsewhere about the church. He says, you guys are, you're having these debates with one another. You're even taking each other to court. He said, rather be wronged. He said, do you know what you're doing to my name? By having these public battles with other Christians? What are you doing to my name? He says, rather be wronged for the sake of my name. There's a lot of peace in that. When you understand that, rather be wronged and protect the name of Jesus. Lift up the name of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. Let the peace of Christ rule. It's not about me. And be thankful. Do you realize being thankful, being grateful is a choice? We have to put that, we have to choose to be thankful. I mean, just look at, just look at your life. You know, if you haven't gone on an overseas mission or, or just gone to a, a third world country, just go. Just go to see how they live. You'll come back thankful. <laughs> we're thankful for all that we have, but also more so we're thankful for what God has done for us. We're thankful for Jesus Christ. We're thankful for life, but we have to choose to be thankful rather than a critical grumpy spirit. Christians are thankful people. And then he goes on to tell us what to do. So these are all kind of things that are are heart conditions that result in action. But now he says, now do these things. You want to have a full life? One, you got to enter into community, by the way, a lone ranger Christian, no such thing isn't supposed to be. We're supposed to be in relationship. He says, and when you get together, here's what I want you to do. Look at this verse 16a. First part of verse 16, he says, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. 
Let the word of Christ, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is why we teach out of the Bible every Sunday. The word is what we want it to, to dwell. Let it richly dwell. Everything we are doing, hopefully, is through the lens of Scripture. Now, this word, 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 the word, it's logos, meaning Jesus, meaning everything that is Jesus, but it's what's then written and revealed. So the word, we need to let it richly dwell. If you've been in discipleship with me or in our, our outpost group, you've probably heard me say, you know, you ask a question, I say, well, what's the Bible say about that? And I get eyes rolled at me. I don't know. You tell me. And a lot of times I don't know either. So we have to look it up. But, but that's the question because my opinion is nothing. Really, we, we need God's opinion. So let the word richly dwell. Let, let us ask often, what does God say about that? Individually, in our families, in the church, what does God have to say about that? That's where we go. You know, and that's one of the things for us, a lot of times that takes an effort when you're counseling somebody or talking to somebody and they bring, you want to just give me your opinion rather than, wait, time out. What does God say about that? Now does my opinion line up with what God says? Let his word richly dwell within you. Uh, elsewhere, it's written that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God uses his word to change lives. There's something about his word that can cut you open, reveal your own motives to you, and then the Holy Spirit can enter in and do something about that. And so we let the word richly dwell, teaching one another, admonishing one another. You realize that's one of your jobs, to help teach others, meaning... They have a life situation, something going on, you know what scripture says about it, or you don't know and you find out and help them. You teach, tell them what the Bible says about it. And admonishing, uh, I don't like that word as much because admonish means to warn, counsel, and encourage. It's to instruct others in God's way and then apply pressure to, to help push somebody in a direction that's best for them because it's biblical, because it's God's way for them. Do you know... As Christians, we're supposed to do that with one another. We're not supposed to just, you know, look at my brother Alex and he's making the wrong choices, going the wrong way and go, eh, his choice. No, I'm supposed to go and go, here's what the Bible says about whatever this is and how can I help you get there? That's what we do one another in community. It's not passive. You know, we talk about this all the time. The Christian life is not passive. Somebody told me the other day they have a t-shirt that says the Christian life is not for wimps. We enter into relationships. That's why here we don't have a lot of programs because you can do churchy programs without ever actually entering into relationships. That's why our main thing is groups because we want to get into those real relationships where guess what? We rub each other the wrong way. It's hard. It's tough, but it's worth it. But when we do, we are controlled by the word of God. Be controlled by the word of God. Constantly asking, what does God say about that? Encouraging one another, admonishing. And then worshiping together. That's what he talks about. Singing, uh, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Do you know we're actually told to do that? That's why we do that. When we gather on Sundays, we sing together. We sing because it's praise together. We worship together. We're supposed to do that. And if you want to do that in your group, do that. Our group probably won't do that, but your group can. Um, but sing together. That's kind of fun. Sing a little hymn or something. But whatever we do, verse 17, still in the context of relationships, whatever we do, 
in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything we're doing, we're doing in his name. What that means is basically we are his ambassadors. By doing things in his name, it's as his representatives and ideally with his authority also. Everything you do as a Christian, you represent Jesus. So when you wrong me, and however I respond, I'm representing Jesus. So let, let it be, we do it in the name of Jesus that I love you in response. Again, we know that the Christian life isn't us living for God, but it's Jesus living his life in and through us. That's the Christian life. And so we do it all in his name, with his authority, representing him. When somebody is hurting, we enter in representing Jesus for them. Not, not to point to us, to point to Jesus. When somebody wrongs us, we forgive we let peace reign because it's Jesus in and through us. When another is dealing with sin, we enter in representing Jesus to help them. In James, he talks about bear one another's burdens. You see a brother or sister suffering with their sin, help them bear their burdens. We enter in, in Jesus' name. Do you want to flourish in this life? Do you want Zoe? The, that's the life. Well, guess what? You have to be in relationships with other people. Sorry. Us introverts, that might not sound as fun, but guess what? There's no greater joy and no greater pain in life than in relationships. So as you look at this list, what do you need to work on? What do you need to work on? Which one of these would those closest to you say you need to work on? And if you're willing, put on humility, and after you leave, ask them. Ask them, hey, if they don't ask you, don't tell them. <laughs> That's not, this isn't a chance for you guys to get in the car and go, here's your stuff. <laughs> That's not it. But if you feel humble, as you get in the car, go, what do you think my things are from this list? Maybe open the Bible on your way home. Which things do I need to work on? And then be willing to work on those. Again, everything we do, though, is wrapped in the envelope of abiding in Jesus. This isn't religion. This isn't going and trying to be good. This is intimacy with Jesus and working on these things at the same time. What is it that you need to work on? Let's pray and let's sing some songs together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Um, we thank you for the peace that comes from this way of living, that it's not about us working hard, but there is some effort we put into to become like you. There, there's some effort we put into to partner with you in making us who you want us to be. Uh, we thank you that you do the heavy lifting. But I do pray also, Holy Spirit, that you would show us what we need to work on, that you would help us experience this life change that leads to flourishing. God, I, I pray for next week and, and the weeks after, this next series of future family. God, uh, our future families need saving. There are things going on in our families right now that if they continue, they're going to destroy our kids, our marriages, and they don't have to. We can move past. And so I pray that, that next week you would maybe bring some people not in this room right now, some families that need to learn this so that they can experience the family that you designed for them. Holy Spirit, we know that it's only you that can change us. And so we give ourselves to you. We give you permission. We want to be clay in your hands. Mold us your way. And now we're going to sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to you because it's all based on you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.